The following message is from Temple Bible Church. For more information about the church and its ministries, visit www.templebiblechurch.org. Today we're going to look at the church at Laodicea, also known as the church that was lukewarm. And today, honestly, we'll probably have more of a Bible study than sermon, but Bible's our middle name, so that's okay for us to do. If you want to look in Revelation 3, we're going to be in verses 14 through 22, and we'll look at a few other places, but you could turn there if you want. So this church is known as the, the lukewarm church, and Laodicea, there, there may be a reason behind that. Laodicea sits in modern-day Turkey. Actually, it sits in ruins just outside the city of Denzili, but in the first century, it was... 10 miles west of Colossae and about 100 miles east of Ephesus. And, you know, a Western reading of, I would that you were hot or cold, which Jesus will tell the church, we'll see in just a moment, we tend to think of hot as good and cold as bad. But actually, as scholars have looked, there may be a different rendering of this. It may be drawn from the city's water supply. See, Herapolis was about five miles away, and they had hot springs. And then Colossae had pure cold water, but um, archaeology shows that there was an aqueduct about five miles south of Laodicea that fed the city, and the water started at a hot spring, but by the time it got to the city, it was tepid, it was hard, though it was drinkable. And so this imagery suggests not really that hot is bad and cold is good, but that there are uses for hot water and cold water, but lukewarm just doesn't work. Maybe in our minds it would be like this, there's, there's hot coffee, which is good. That's a good thing, especially on a cold day. And now, um, I think because people want to take our money, they fooled us into thinking that cold coffee is good too, and we'll actually drink it. But Nobody, nobody likes lukewarm coffee. That's just nasty. If you do, don't raise your hand. We will make fun of you today. So when Jesus says to the church, you're, you're lukewarm, I really have no use for you, it's, it's a metaphor that they will understand intimately. Now, Laodicea today, again, it's in ruins, but in its heyday, which would have been about from the 3rd century B.C. through really the 1st, a little bit into the 2nd century A.D., it was a great city of trade. A lot of money changed hands there in Laodicea. It was a city known for black wool that was produced there, and then they made a salve for healing people's eyes. This is important to know, both this metaphor of being lukewarm and then this salve that they produce for their eyes, because what we're going to see in this text is that Jesus is powerful, but Jesus is also personal. About a year ago, Dave Tate took the high school students through these seven churches, and he had me do one of the lessons. I did the church at Sardis then, and as I was preparing, I asked Dave, so, Dave, is there any one just big takeaway that you want the students to have from this series? And he said, yeah, it's this, that Jesus is both powerful and personal. And if you look at each of these studies of the churches, you can see ways that's true. We're about to look at how Jesus is powerful, 
Then we see he's very personable. He's or personal. He's speaking a language that the Laodicean church understands. So what we're going to do is look at really a short statement on this historical city. Really just delivered to a few people in the city. But in these brief words given, there's a lot for us to learn. And we're going to break it up like this. We're going to look at the person of Jesus, the problem of the Laodiceans, the potential for transformation, and then the promise for those who overcome. And we start with the person of Jesus because the person making the statement really, really matters. If just anybody were bringing a message to the church at Laodicea, it might not matter. There could conceivably be a message from Brian Williams to the church at Laodicea because he was there in history, you guys know. But they might not listen. But this is a church who's getting a message from God the Son. He's described before he gives these messages to the churches like this. John sees him, he says, I turned to see the voice of him who was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands was one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. And the hairs of his head were white, like wool, or like snow, he says. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and his feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he had the seven stars, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys to death and Hades. This is the person speaking to the church in Laodicea. And here's what he says to the church in Laodicea. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. He says, I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. Not realizing that you're wretched pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. So I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire, so that you may be rich, and white garments, so that you may clothe yourself, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes, that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove in discipline, so be zealous and repent, He says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. And the one who overcomes, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat with my Father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Well, God, we pray indeed today that we would have ears to hear as we see what you said to the church in 
Laodicea, that we might receive really what you're speaking to us through your word. And God, we pray you would shape us by it and that our hearts would be passionate for you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we're going to look at the person of Jesus, and it's important, I think, today as we look at the person of Jesus, because while we finish this series on the letters to the seven churches, churches all around the world are entering a season of Advent, this season of longing as we prepare for the Christmas holiday. And our series will start next week, but this week, when we look at this picture given to this one who is speaking to the church, we see one worthy of our longing, worthy of our affection, our worship, and our passion. And really, just in addition to that, anytime we look at Christology, when we look and think about the person of Jesus Christ, we're looking at truths that are central to our faith. So we're going to look and see how Jesus is described, and see what we can learn from that. The first thing we see is that He is the Amen. He is the Amen. John Piper says about this, that when He says He's the Amen, He means that He is reliable. He is God's confirmation, God's yes to all divine promises. Amen is simply a transliteration of a Hebrew word that means firm, or true, or faithful. So the next phrase defines it. He's the amen, the faithful and true witness. See, Piper's quoting another verse when he alludes to this one and he says that he's the yes to all divine promises. Paul told the Corinthian church, every promise of God for us is yes in Christ Jesus. So when we look back at the promises of God, like I'll be your shield and your exceeding great reward... I'm your God, I'm with you. I'll uphold you by my righteous right hand. I'll take out your heart of stone and put a heart of flesh and I'll write my law on your hearts. And I will move you to do my will. I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. All those promises for us are yes in Christ Jesus. He is the amen. He's also the faithful and true witness. Verse 14 tells us, He's the faithful and true witness. See, there is no clearer witness of the character and ability of God the Father than Jesus, God the Son. John 1.18 says it like this, that no one has ever seen God. But the only God, that's Jesus, who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. Hebrews 1, speaking of Jesus, says, In these last days God has spoken to us by His Son, He's a faithful and true witness. It says, Whom He appointed heir over all things, through whom He also created the world. And here it is, He's the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. He's a faithful and true witness. The radiance of His glory, the imprint of His nature. And He upholds the universe by the word of His power. He is the amen. He's a faithful and true witness. And then he's the beginning of God's creation. It's really, really important that we understand what John the Revelator means when he writes this down. The beginning of God's creation. It's just like another phrase that we read in Colossians 1.15. 
He's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Now, it's important that we understand what this means because throughout the history of Christianity, people have taken this phrase, they've twisted it to mean something it doesn't, and they've diminished the glory of Jesus. They've spoken of Him as a created being, very high up in creation, but He was created by the Father and not co-equal in substance and nature with the Father not eternal. And what they'll do, they'll say he's the invisible or the image of the invisible God, the firstborn. He was the first of creation, but still he's part of creation. See, in the, in the fourth century, Arians did this, people who followed the teaching of Arius. In the 21st century, Jehovah's Witnesses do this. They diminish who Jesus is. And it's a dangerous thing, which, by the way, just a little Christmas trivia for you. The Council of Nicaea in the 4th century, there's this guy named Arius who's teaching that Jesus is not the, third, or the second member of the Trinity, that he's not co-equal in substance and nature and essence with the Father. And there's also a guy there named St. Nicholas. True story. He did not, um, in the 4th century, wear those red pants, black boots, red shirt, and a hat. I've got photographs to prove it if you don't believe me. He's there at the Council of Nicaea. Arius is there at the Council of Nicaea. And Arius is teaching false things about Jesus. And St. Nicholas gets so upset at his diminishing the glory of God that he decks him. He just knocks him flat. I think the theological word is flat on his butt. He just decks him. Now, I'm not telling you that if you disagree with someone theologically, you can knock them out. But what I can tell you is that you can tell your kids... There's no question about it. Sanny has a good right hand. (laughs) See, what we can glean from that is that who Jesus is really, really matters. So what does it mean that he's the firstborn among all creation? Well, I think the verses that follow in Colossians explain that. Colossians 1.16 says, For by him all things were created. He's this, this active agent of the Trinity in creation. All things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. This verse starts and ends with all things. Now, if Gary were here, he would tell us that the Greek word for all things means all things. Jesus is creator God. Verses 17 through 20 go on to say it. And he is before all things. And in him, all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. And I think that's really a key word that when he's spoken of as the beginning or the firstborn among all creation, it's pointing to his preeminence. For in Him, in Him, all the fullness of the God had was pleased to dwell. And through Him, to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross. John says it like this, In the beginning was the Word, that's Jesus, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. He's the Amen. He's the faithful and true witness, and He's the firstborn or the beginning of creation. He just is. 
See, what Jesus does in his teaching is destroy any notion that he's a prophet or simply a good teacher. He takes that off the table by his teaching. He removes the ability of man to call him a mere prophet or a teacher. Last Sunday, I flew home from time with some of our workers in Oman and in the UAE. And we had a great time with them. It was a little bit surreal to see all the horrible things going on in Paris when we were being welcomed into people's homes. But those people, though they were very kind to us, they don't understand who Jesus is. That's why our workers are there. They would say, he's a prophet. Matt Chandler says, he says, no, no, no. I am the son of man. And when he does so, he's saying, I am God. I am not a God, Chandler writes. I am the God. Jesus is saying, I am co-eternal with the Father, and I always have been, I always will be. I have not been created. He calls himself the second person of the Trinity. He's fully God, and he's fully man. And then in verse 15, we get just a picture again, when he says, I know your works. He's the amen, the faithful and true witness. He's the firstborn among all creation, and then he is the one who knows. He's the one who knows. For the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirits, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And it says, No creature is hidden from His sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of Him to whom we must give an account. See, that's an important thing for us to remember. Whether he's talking to the first century Laodicean church or whether he's talking to the 21st century evangelical church, there is no manipulation of him. There's no deception of him. There's no tricking him. We can spend an awful lot of time trying to make people believe we have everything together trying to make people believe everything is okay, that there's no brokenness in our life or nothing that we're struggling with or we don't have sin issues. But you can't trick this guy, Jesus. There's no deceiving him. He's the one who's going to call this church lukewarm. And so he's the one who knows. He knows if you're passionate about politics, but lukewarm when it comes to praying for all those in authority. He knows if you're passionate, ladies, about your wardrobe, but lukewarm about the Word of God. He knows, men, if you're passionate about wins and losses for your team, but really lukewarm when it comes to walking in the ways of Jesus. He knows if you're passionate about Facebook, but lukewarm about following Him. He knows if you're passionate about living safely, really doing all you can to make sure everything is secure, but lukewarm when it comes to loving people. He knows if you're passionate about your work and your career, but lukewarm when it comes to loving your spouse and your children. He sees past our facades into our hearts. He sees past our mask into our motives. And so when the amen and faithful and true witness comes to town, the Laodicean church has problems. They have problems. And if you're following along, each week we've kind of give commendation, 
condemnation, challenge, and promise. And his commendation to the church at Laodicea is not one word. Can you imagine that? Here's the guy who, by definition, throughout history, is the most loving person on the face of the earth. And he doesn't have anything good to say about this church. Now, I I sincerely believe if he were speaking to us, there would be some good things to say. I think we'd also have some challenges, but he's got nothing good to say about them. I thought, what would this be like? And I, I thought that would be like if somebody asked me about Oklahoma. What do you think about Oklahoma, Chase? Got anything good to say about them? I mean, they're next to Texas. There's that, right? Some people say they got a good football team, but, I mean, Texas is terrible this year, and we beat them, so it can't be that. I want you to hear, if you're from Oklahoma, I don't at all want to, I'm just joking, don't want to be condescending. Condescending means speaking down to, okay? So, so maybe, maybe if you're from Oklahoma, you... You know kind of what this Laodicean church would have felt like. Can you imagine? Not one word good to say. You you don't want to be that church. You don't want to be that church, but he has got condemnation. They're lukewarm, wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. They've got problems. And their problems, really, he says amount to a poor self-awareness. They amount to a poor self-awareness. Why do we know this? Because in verse 17 he says, You say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. Not realizing that you're wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. And when you think about what he's saying, you're wretched, you're pitiable, you're poor. They think they've got all this wealth because of all the money that's coming through their city. And he says, you've got a sin problem so great that if people were to see you, they'd be sorry for you. And while you have all this money, really you're spiritually bankrupt, you're poor, and you can't see your own need. You've got this nakedness or this shame that you're unaware of. Isn't it awkward to be around people who have no self-awareness? Maybe there's, there's someone you know who thinks they're the life of the party, but when they show up, the party shuts down. Or maybe there's someone who has this view that's kind of this out-there view, but they think everybody thinks just like them, and they talk about it all the time. And it's just awkward to be around them, because they don't realize or understand what's going on. And Jesus says to this church... You've got a horrible sense of self-awareness, basically. You think that things are going great. And in, in reality, they're, they're just not. They're just not. Now, this is a point in this text where it really, it really seems like this is horrible news for the Laodiceans. And it is. But there's also good news in the midst of it. Because if we our Bible, we know that the Old Testament speaks of the Messiah who would come, and He would comfort those who mourn. 
He would bring freedom to the captives and good news to the poor. The son of David, Isaiah tells us, over and over would give sight to the blind. And in Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve ate the fateful fruit and their sin was exposed and their nakedness made them ashamed, it was God who made a covering that would point to the ultimate covering His Son would offer. The issue is they just don't know their own needs. They don't understand how desperately they need the King. See, they need gold that will make them truly rich because they're wretched and pitiable and poor. They need white garments So their shame will be covered because they're naked. And they need salve for their eyes so that they can see because they're blind. And oh, if they would understand who Jesus is and how He can meet their needs. Author N.T. Wright says this, it says, When we learn to read the story of Jesus and see it as the story of the love of God, doing for us what we could not do for ourselves, That insight produces again and again a sense of astonished gratitude, which is very near the heart of authentic Christian experience. We've we've got to take this away from today, that the God who is, the God who is faithful and true, the God who creates and the God who knows, this is the one who can take care of needs we don't even know we have. Provision has been made through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So he gives them this challenge. Buy gold, get white garments, sow for your eyes, and he says, be zealous and repent. It's this interesting statement that he says when he says, buy gold from me refined by fire. It kind of reminds me of Matthew 13, 44, when Jesus is talking about the kingdom, and he says that the kingdom of heaven, it's like a treasure hidden in a field, and when a man found it in his joy, he hid it again and sold all he had to buy the field. Well, if you read that at face value, you think, well, can we buy the kingdom, or can we buy this gold that Jesus offers? But the, the truth is, it's, it's gold that we can't afford. It's a kingdom that we couldn't purchase. No one can ransom his brother, we're told in Proverbs. It's far too costly. But I I think the beauty of this gold is that it's actually been purchased for us. It's free. Through the blood of Jesus, through the resurrection of Jesus, he is the one who holds the keys to death and Hades. So even with their problems, there's this beautiful potential for transformation. And the potential for transformation, we've got to be clear, it's not in them, it's not because they are amazing people any more than it's in us. The potential for transformation is rooted in the character and the ability of Jesus the Transformer. It's rooted in the character and ability of Jesus the Transformer. So they've got to turn in complete dependence on Him, just like we do. 
So what do they turn to him for? Again, they turn to him and they get this gold. It's provision for their sin problem. They get this covering, white garments. And then they get the salve for their eyes so that they can see a new way to live. See, Jesus is powerful. He is personal. He speaks a language they understand. And He says, I'll give you what you need. I'll give you what you need. And it's a new way of living. I'll give you provision for your sin. I'll cover it. And I'll help you to see. I'll help you to see the new way to live. But then he tells them to be zealous and repent. Be zealous and repent. He says, I discipline those I love. Therefore be zealous and repent. Now, my wife and I have five kids and four of them are boys. Three of them are five and under. So we understand what it means to discipline. And I'd love to say we discipline out of love all the time. That's what we try to do. Um, But we've got a 23-month-old that I really believe God will use his energy and lack of focus in amazing ways one day. And so sometimes when he's done the same thing 15 times and it's about 6.45 a.m., it's not always out of love, but we try to do it out of love. And so one example, one of the things we like to say about him when we want to be nice to him is that he's just outside appropriate all the time. And as a dad, when he climbs up on the two-foot high table, that's kind of fun, exciting to see if he can jump off and land. But when he climbs up on the kitchen counter over and over and over, hypothetically, of course, we'd never let that happen. It's frightening. We love him, so we discipline him. We're training. You guys can pray for us in that training process. He says, those I love, I discipline. See, it's clear that he loves us. He died for us, but he says, I will bring you under my discipline. Therefore, be zealous and repent. He's calling them to godly sorrow. Godly sorrow in our day is about as popular as humility on social media. But Paul told the church in Corinth, there's a sorrow that is according to the will of God, and it produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation. But the sorrow of the world produces death. The Corinthian church, they had a godly sorrow. And Paul describes it. He says, behold what earnestness this very thing, this godly sorrow has produced in you. What vindication of yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what avenging of wrong in everything you demonstrated yourselves to be innocent in the matter. Now were they truly innocent? Had they never sinned? Well no, of course they had. They had godly sorrow. But they didn't treat their sins as a light thing. And they wanted to come in repentance and make it right. John Piper, quoting Martin Luther, says, When our Lord and Master Jesus said repent, He intended that the entire life of believers should be repentance. All of the Christian life is repentance. Turning from sin and trusting in the good news that Jesus saves sinners aren't merely a one-time inaugural experience, but they're the daily substance of Christianity. The gospel, Jesus died for our sins, was buried, He rose from the dead, 
according to the Scripture. The Gospel is for every day and every moment. Repentance is to be the Christian's continual posture. See, it's not a one-time moment. It's all of life. And for those, for those who repent, there's this promise. See, I think that's why the Apostle Paul said, I die daily. Because there's this continual posture of repentance. Now, maybe you don't need it. Maybe when you go to your place of work where there are broken people who live in broken situations, maybe you just walk in every day and you think, how can I love these wonderful people? And it always goes well. I'm sure you and your spouse have never argued or had to ask forgiveness from one another this week during the holiday. I bet you you never have to apologize to your children. See, it's every day, every day there's this posture of turning and turning again to hope in Jesus and His finished work for us. And the promise for those who overcome is, I will grant them to sit with Him on His throne. That's what He grants. That's what He grants. See, the promise for those who answer and overcome is fellowship with Jesus and ruling and reigning with Jesus. I've got to tell you, we spend an awful lot of time, an awful lot of money, trying to find satisfaction We'll do that this next month, spending all this money. Will this satisfy this person, or will this satisfy my kids, or will this satisfy me? And far too often, it escapes us. But when we come to Jesus for refuge and fellowship, He can make us into the sort of people who are fit to rule and reign with Him. So he says, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone answers, I'll come in and eat with him and he with me. We're going to have sweet and unhindered fellowship. As we were traveling over to the Middle East, there was this one guy, a Muslim friend of theirs, that our workers just kept talking about. They kept talking about how friendly he was, how hospitable he was, and that when he found out we were coming, he just had to have us in his home. He wanted to have a meal with us. And so we thought, okay, we'll do this. And we didn't really know what that's going to look like and what meal we were going to be eating. But we showed up for lunch last Friday. And there's just a feast laid out before us. This guy has spent the morning cooking. He brought his brother-in-law over to help. He welcomed us in. He showed us kindness. Gave us gifts. It was this beautiful hospitality. It was the sort of response you would want to give if the king is knocking at your door. He says, I'm standing and knocking. If anyone opens a door, I'll come in. I'll come in. And oh, by the way, if you overcome, you can sit on my throne just like I sat down on my father's. See, this promise is only as good as the one who makes it. I kind of in one of my social media feeds, I keep getting this ad for Ray-Bans or Oakleys for $24.99. Now, I'm not sure that's a really good promise that I can depend on. You guys think I ought to buy those? 
since I'm opposed to my identity being stolen, I haven't bit on that link yet. It's a false promise. The world gives us all kinds of those. But the one who promises, I'll come in and eat with you, the one who promises to him who overcomes, he can reign with me. Well, it's only as good as the one who makes it. And he is the amen. He's the faithful and true witness. He's the beginning of God's creation. He is the one who knows. He's the one who provides gold refined by fire. He's the one who covers us with white robes. He makes us clean. He's the one who shows us the way. He gives us eyes to see. He is indeed the Christ who reigns. So as we enter into this Christmas season, maybe you're here today and and maybe you just don't even know this Jesus. And today would be a day where you would say, I want to put my hope in Him. I want to trust Jesus for forgiveness of my sins and covering for my sins that's full and free. I want to put my life in His hands. If that's you today, you can do that. I'd love to visit with you about that when we're done. Maybe though as a believer, you're, you're here and if anybody asks you, are you a Christian? You'd certainly say yes, and it's true you are. But somewhere along the way, in the busyness of life or in the brokenness of life, something's happened and it's just kind of made things stagnant. Maybe you've just entered that season. Maybe you've been there for a long time. And he stands at the door and knocks. He says, hey, I have what you need. Maybe you've forgotten, but I have what you need. If you just open yourself up to me, I'll come in and we'll have sweet fellowship together. If you labor with me, you overcome in this broken world, you will reign with me, believer. That's his invitation to us. Well, there's one we could long for and have passion for and hope in and celebrate this season. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your great love for us. And God, we thank you that your love was so great that you sent the amen. You sent the faithful and true witness. You sent the firstborn among creation. You sent the one who knows us and loves us still. You sent the one who provides for, covers our sin and shows us the way. So God, we give you praise. And I pray, God, that that reality, that Jesus Christ came and lived and died and rose from the dead for us, God, would move us to a gratitude that can't be taken away from us. It would move us to a passion for His name that would impact all we do, all we are, all we hope to be. And God, that, that this Christmas season, that this would be a king that we celebrate, that there's no lukewarm about us. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen.